The wicked problem of healthcare. There will never be as much as we want to go around. Take any population, large or small, and imagine creating a spreadsheet with one row for each woman, man, and child. Now, imagine the first column in that spreadsheet for a given row contains the amount of health care spending that person or others on their behalf will want over a given period of time. For the purposes of this exercise, this first column is cost no object. If there is the smallest possibility of a given medication or therapy will help that person, throw its cost into column A for that person's row. To help with this exercise, if you're doing it on behalf of your child, wife, husband, or parent, think about what medication or therapy you would be prepared to forego in order to make sure that there's enough to go around for everybody. This is a trick question. The answer is very likely zero, or it damn well should be. At what point will it be okay for your child, wife, husband, or parent to not receive the benefit of something that may help? Any perfectly reasonable person would say there isn't one. If there is the slightest chance of it helping, then do it. Wanting it all in this manner doesn't make you selfish. Just the opposite, in fact. It makes you a thoroughly decent human being who believes in doing whatever is necessary to look after their loved ones. Now, in the second column of each row of that imaginary spreadsheet, put in the dollar amount the person in that row is able to spend on health care in the same period of time. How much is your 8-year-old able to pay? Probably zero. In any event, it's virtually guaranteed to be less, way, way less, than the number for all the health care your 8-year-old requires. Don't forget all those just-in-case items you threw in that any responsible and loving parent would want for their child. The exercise is like it the same for aging parents. The health care your dear old folks will require will be very different, of course, but once again, the amount in column A is going to be way greater than column B. Before we leave this exercise, think about which rows of that still imaginary spreadsheet will have the second column greater than the first. I don't know about you, but I can't think there are going to be many. Certainly fewer all the time, and maybe none at all. Finally, total up both columns. In the totals will lie the wicked problem, which by now should be blindingly obvious. The cost of health care we legitimately desire for ourselves and for our loved ones will always exceed the ability let alone desire, to pay for it. Whew. Good thing all of that was an imaginary exercise. Except it's not. As societies around the world wrestle with supporting the most basic of human rights, good health, the biggest obstacle to addressing that problem is failing to think about it in this simplistic manner. It's a useful exercise, however, because it's amazing the number of creative ways used to paper over it to deny these facts exist. To pretend the numbers don't work this way, or believing we can ensure our way out of the problem, or simply ignoring the facts altogether, is a philosophical dead end. We may kid ourselves for a while that we have managed our way around it, but eventually the system goes bust. We just went directly from problem to crisis instantaneously. This is all true before we even get to the politics of healthcare. We already have a problem that is incredibly difficult to solve. I'm willing to bet that politicians, constrained by election cycles and the craven self-interest of some, aren't going to be able to help at all. The answer, of course, is that somehow, some way, the amount of health care that we can afford has to be allocated, yes, rationed, in some reasonable and equitable way. 
The inhumane, immoral way of doing it is to effectively make the decision that some other person, or more to the point, some other person's child, wife, husband, or parent, is somehow less deserving of the treatment than you and yours are. Collectively, it's easy to say that we would never think about it this way. But back to the thought exercise for a moment. Is there ever going to be a time standing by the hospital bed when you say, that's enough tests for Ma, we need to save a few for some other person's Ma? It's never going to happen, nor should it. Which leaves us with making sure that Ma gets the test she needs. Not the test she may want, or the ones that we may want for her, but the ones she needs to provide the best possible outcome under the prevailing circumstances. So who decides what Ma gets? Well, let's start with who doesn't decide, or shouldn't. Absolutely, positively, and without question, it should not be the government through some arbitrary set of rules. Tied for last in this department are insurers of one sort or another where they make similarly arbitrary decisions. In both cases, the decisions they make are made without the benefit of significant medical training and primarily in the interest of the financial bottom line. Patients and positive outcomes are abstract notions at best which leaves us with those we have trusted for generations with the appropriate allocation of resources to address medical and health problems. Doctors, nurses, and other medically qualified personnel. I am truly thankful there have only been a few instances where a family member of mine has had contact with the medical profession in what can only be described as life-threatening situations, ones where without medical intervention, that family member would have died, plain and simple. Amongst myriad concerns at those times, the one thing I did not have to worry about was the quality or quantity of medical care my family members received. On the contrary, I was utterly astounded at the amazing care they did receive. The professionalism demonstrated by medical staff and their support personnel was universally outstanding. The doctors and nurses were, to their core, deeply concerned about providing the highest level of care. It's just who they are and why they chose the profession they did. At the moment they were attending to us, it was like we were the only family in the world. This is not to say that they were reckless in the way they doled out what they believed to be medically necessary for the situation. In fact, it was the opposite. They were concerned solely with providing the best and most appropriate care for the person in front of them. That's not the same as the most of or the most expensive. They wanted my wife up and on her feet and home again, not because it was financially in their best interest, but rather in the best interest of my wife. Nothing else. Cost-effectiveness was a happy byproduct of their approach, and not the goal. In other words, the medical staff are able to keep the seemingly conflicting concepts of medical necessity and financial responsibility in their heads at the same time without significant difficulty. They alone, and not politicians, and not insurers, and not anyone else, are the ones I trust the most to review my list of items in column A, decide which ones are appropriate in order that they eventually can be paid for with what's in column B. This only makes sense. Doctors and nurses have been prioritizing almost from the day they decided to become doctors and nurses. These are hard professions for which to train and qualify. Dopes need not apply. They had to prioritize their lives, more studying, less partying, so they could afford to pursue those careers in the first place. Once they had qualified in the profession, they were immediately asked to keep right on prioritizing, this time in how they allocated the limited number of hours in their shift or their day to the best possible effect or so they didn't run out of essential supplies. 
So should we be surprised at all that when we ask them to prioritize how health care is allocated, that they are naturals at it? It's a tiny step from what they've been doing all their lives and for which they have provably outstanding skills. However, it's not sufficient to dump a pot of money at these professionals' feet and ask them to do their best. As a society, we have some significant to-do items. First, said pot of money should be as large as possible, at the expense of other important things if necessary. It's been said that when you're well, you want many things, but if you're sick, you only want to be well again. If good health is what we value most in our lives, then we have a responsibility to make it the highest priority in terms of how we spend our money, both individually and as a civil society. The second item is to take whatever steps necessary to keep the cost of health care under control. So who do you think is paying for the wall-to-wall pharmaceutical advertising on TV these days? Furthermore, I'm sorry, I just don't think ED is as big a problem as heart disease or cancer. Candidly, they're not even in the same league, let alone ballpark. Third, we need to figure out the absolutely most efficient means possible of channeling the money from column B into column A. Any amount siphoned off by governments or insurers or administrators or to any other end means less money for column A. It's just that simple. The final item is a little less motherhood and apple pie. Circling back to where I began, any population, large or small, it's important to note that charity really does begin at home. We're naturally going to be most concerned about the health of the members of our own family. Beyond that, our extended family. Then friends, and then perhaps that of our neighbors. Then people who live in the same city or town as us, and in turn to ever-widening circles to our state or province, and finally to the country in which we live. The imaginary spreadsheet can and must be applied to all these populations. Fortunately, in all cases, it works exactly the same, regardless of the size of that population and the period of time in question. If that wasn't enough, there's actually a bigger challenge. If we believe any of the above, then the ultimate logical conclusion is that the spreadsheet exercise all supplies to everybody on the planet. To believe otherwise is to believe that not all lives have the same value or that some are more worthy of health care than others. And we all know, in a civilized society, that's just not right. Terence Gannon, and I'm not there yet. Thank you so much for listening, and if you like what you've heard, please rate the show on iTunes or Facebook. It really helps build the audience, which means, heck, I get to keep doing this. Not There Yet is a weekly series of short essays podcasted from the second decade of the 21st century. They are all written and read by me, and the entire production is wholly owned by Interlog Inc. of Calgary, Canada. All rights are reserved. Our music is Life As We Make It by All of Music, available on Premium Beat. The Not There Yet podcast is hosted on Fireside of Austin, Texas. The show is recorded using Audio-Technica microphones and a Zoom H4N digital recorder. It is edited and mixed on Logic Pro 10 from Apple. Thank you again for listening, and we'll be back next week with another episode. Until then, remember, it's the journey, not the destination. It really doesn't matter if you're not there yet. <laughs>